The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. The series that uh, we're doing now about God, today I want to tell you about an aspect of our God, the God that we serve, the God of the Bible, that is absolutely unique, and I'm titling it, the God is the cross. Our God is tied very closely to the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, and so it's, to a lot of people, it's really absurd. I mean, why would you have a God who, whose his identity is defined by death or by failure or weakness? I mean, it's ridiculous to think that you would worship a God who was so weak, and in fact, no other religion in the world is uh, founded on that basis, that their God either died, I mean, nobody would ever conceive of their God dying, or that he was weak. Just the opposite, their God is powerful, all-powerful and strong, and they want to go forth from that basis. And so when Christianity is talking about uh, our God who is so weak that he died on a cross, and he did it voluntarily, it becomes a huge stumbling block for most people. The Apostle Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians. He said, Jews demand a sign and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, Gentiles being everyone else. And so it's still true today that the cross is a major stumbling block for most people. It, they don't understand it. In fact, it's probably the number one question. Why did Jesus die to begin with? Every major religion in the world began somewhere. Islam began in Arabia. In fact, it's still a, a religion primarily of the Middle East. Hinduism began in India, and it's still their main center of the world. Buddhism began in the Far East, and it's still predominantly an Eastern religion, although it is coming into the United States more and more on the West Coast. So most of Buddhism in the United States is on the West Coast. And Christianity began in Jerusalem. But the center of Christianity is no longer in Jerusalem. All of these other religions that I mentioned, their center is still there. It began there, it's still there today. Mecca is still the center of Islam and everybody returns back to, to Mecca in Saudi Arabia. And so why is it that all these other religions of the world, they began and they stay there, and then Christianity, it moves. Christianity moved from Jerusalem to Rome. And for a long time, the center of the Christian world was Rome, and then eventually it began to move uh, farther north, ended up in Europe, and became the center of the world in Europe, and then eventually changed and became the United States, and now changing again. And probably in the next 50 years or so, the center of Christianity will be somewhere in South America. So why is it that in all these other religions it stays, but in Christianity it's constantly moving? And I think the best answer for that is the weakness of the cross. The cross is this huge stumbling block. See, the cross is all about giving power away. When you have power, you give it away. It's giving resources away. The, the story, the heart of Christianity is that 
weakness of the cross, giving power away, sharing resources, and serving. One of the classic descriptions that Jesus gave of himself in in Philippians is about he did not come to be served like a king, he came to serve. And so when Christianity becomes affluent in an area, when it becomes powerful, becomes a lot of resources, becomes popular, it's the dominant religion of that location, it begins to move away from that. It begins to go to a place where it is not known, it is not powerful, it is not dominant, it doesn't have all the resources. You see, that weakness of the cross causes it to constantly move. And so Mark tells a story, a short story in his gospel of Jesus' encounter with a rich young guy, a young guy who was rich and uh, probably uh, somewhat famous and well-known in the town and probably even good-looking, because, right, all rich people are good-looking. We all know that, too. And so he has this encounter with this guy, and I think it, it illustrates exactly the point that I'm making, is that the cross is a stumbling block to most people. So let's take a look at these, these 10 verses and then pull out of that what we can today that we can use in our faith, our journey with God. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell at his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let me pause for a minute there. That's kind of a dumb question because he knew the answer. Everybody knew the answer. I mean, that's the one thing that the rabbis taught, the one thing that they focused on all the time and were constantly answering is this question. How do you get eternal life? And in fact, they had all these explanations and rules and extra books they tacked onto this to explain how you get eternal life. So Why is he asking a question he already knows the answer to? We'll find out in a minute. Verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor, defraud, honor your father and mother. Little, little, little commercial here, side note. We're starting a new series after this one called Plague. And uh, Plague is an acronym for uh, seven deadly sins, although we're going to cover six of them. That's coming up here soon. Check the posters out website. Verse 20, teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since a boy. Now, <laughs> I love, I always throw my twisted thoughts into some of these, but I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus' responses to that was, liar, (laughs) right? Wouldn't that fit? I mean, yeah, I followed all of these from a boy, right, yeah, hmm, yeah, and you were president once, right? We believe that. But Jesus doesn't call him on the carpet. He doesn't call him a liar. He says, Verse 20 says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He said, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. 
At this, the man's face fell. You bet it did. He was sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, This with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Now, this is an amazing interchange that Jesus has with this guy. And I think it really, it's something that we can identify with in a, in a very real and, and relevant way. And it seems like Jesus could see right through this guy. You could just see right through him and knew exactly what his problem was and cut right to it very quickly. And essentially, his analysis of this young guy, this rich, young, handsome man who had everything, was yet that he had made God his boss, but not his savior. He was content to have God be his boss, his mentor, uh, someone who gave him great advice, a guide, but not Savior. And so he says to him, here, let me, let me explain this for you, you, you handsome young man here. And let me, help me, I'll, I'll portray this in such a way that you can see it for yourself. So he says to the man, imagine with me, you have no servants, you have no mansions, You have no inheritance, no big bank accounts, no more breakfast in bed with your favorite eggs and toast and fresh strawberries. All of it's gone, none of it's left, and all you have is me. Can you live that way? And Mark tells us that he was sad. Well, it's sort of a weak translation of that word. I think it'd be better the word grieved. He was grieved because it's the same word that Matthew uses when he describes Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Same word Mark is using here. That Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. There it's translated grieved. He was grieved at about what he was going to face. And think about what Jesus was facing in that moment under tremendous stress and duress that he was about to go to the cross and what he was going to give up. And he felt tremendous grief. And this guy was grieving because he knew that he wasn't just giving up material things. I mean, because on the face of it, we can say, okay, that, I understand that. But he was giving up his very identity, who he was as a person All of that was being thrown out. He had to start all over and find himself in Christ and Christ alone. And that caused him to grieve. I think in this story, something is being revealed about you and me. 
that we all are content with God being our wisdom and our guide and our blesser, someone who gives us good things, our mentor, even maybe a great teacher, but are we content with him being savior? Because if God's gonna be your savior, then you have to give up that one thing. You see, that's what the cross demands, is that we surrender that thing that we look to as our savior. And we all have those things. We all have something. What is yours? I know what mine is. This guy was looking at the rules exclusively. I mean, he said that was his focus. I have followed these rules all my life. I have done them. I've kept them to a T. And when you follow the rules like that, you end up with a God who is your boss and not your savior. Now, let me ex- explain that in, in maybe a way you can understand it. Think of if you had a son or a daughter and you raised them with Christian values and you taught them Christian values, especially as it pertains to marriage and you've trained your son or your daughter from a little child, listen, that the, the Bible teaches that we should not be unequally yoked. It's a very important teaching that the Apostle Paul gave to us through the anointing of the Holy Spirit that two people should not be unequally yoked. And what he meant by that was that uh, a Christian should never marry a non-Christian. It is, it, is, it is something you should not do. Stay away from that. Don't do it. Because if you do, then you open up this whole door of potential suffering in your life because you're talking about two value systems that don't go together. And when you want to go in marriage, you want to go like this together, pulling together in the single direction. And when a Christian unites in that holy matrimony of marriage, that that intimate union, and you're going like this, it doesn't work. Don't do it. And so you've raised your son or daughter in uh, that understanding, and they get to the point where they fall in love with someone who is not a Christian. And your son or daughter comes to you and says, Dad, Mom, I'm going to get married, and this is who I'm going to marry. And at that moment, then you have a choice. And if your focus is your whole life, you've been following the rules and that's your focus and do what's right and be a good person and follow the rules of Christianity, then your choice is simple. Reject your son or daughter, take a stance for the truth, uphold the truth and tell them they are not worthy of you or your presence because of their decision to disobey. But if that isn't your approach, instead you're intently focusing on the attitude of the law. You see, the attitude, see, Jesus never told the guy that wealth was evil. That was not his point. He didn't say having all that stuff was bad. He didn't even make the assumption, which a lot of people make, is that people only get wealth by stepping on other people. So there's no pure path to being mega rich, you've always, you, you know, if, you've, if you're mega rich, you've done it by committing horrible acts against humanity, and that's why you're rich. A lot of people believe that. Jesus doesn't even affirm that belief. So if you follow the heart of the law, the attitude of God's requirements, 
Well, then you come to a completely different conclusion on your son or your daughter. You say to them simply, I love you, and I would be happy to be at your wedding. That doesn't mean that I appreciate you choosing to violate one of God's principles, but I choose the relationship over the rule, and I embrace you. See, this young guy, this ruler, when it came down to that decision, he chose the law over Jesus. It was so much easier, right? I mean, he had already done it up to this point. He had successfully followed all the rules. But he knew there was something missing he knew there, wasn't, there was something there that he needed more. He didn't have it. But giving it all up and letting Jesus be Savior, no, that, he couldn't do it. He couldn't see the relationship in that. So he went with the law. Since we're talking about money here, and this guy was rich, I don't know how rich, but very rich, Let's use money in this same analogy. If God is your boss, but money is your savior, how do you know? How do you know that's the case? There are warning signs. I'll give you four. There are probably more. Four. You can't give large sums of money away. That's a classic sign of somebody who God is their boss, but money is their savior because they can't let go of the big amounts. They're able to give the small amounts. And think about it, large in terms, that's a relative term, right? I mean, large for a guy who makes 50000 a year is not the same as large for a guy who makes 100000 a year, right? So it's relative. Maybe you say, well, I give large amounts or it's large to me, what have you. You never give large amounts of money away. You can't. Second thing is that you're absolutely terrified when you realize you don't have enough to continue in the same lifestyle you have. You know, there's this fear, panic. We're going to run out. We're not going to have enough at the end of the month. And we might have to go without some things, and it brings great fear. And number three, it gets under your skin when other people your age are doing better than you. And you, maybe you don't say anything and you don't complain about it, but it really gets and just irks you, it bothers you when other people your age are doing far better than you. It bothers you. And the last one, four, no matter how much you have, it's never enough. You always want more. Even when you do start earning more and acquiring more, it's never enough. You have to have more, and you keep pursuing more. And that bigger house and the bigger house and better vacations and more exotic vacations and bigger cars and better cars and more of this, more, 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 more. These are four clear signs that if you're caught in any one of these, then you are either making money your savior or you are very close to it, just as the rich young ruler was, no different. 
Did you notice that Mark said that Jesus loved him? Did you see that? That's incredibly rare in all of the gospel accounts. You never see that line tagged on any story. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And I think what Mark is telling us here is that Jesus looked at him, and Jesus was about 31 at this time, and this young guy was probably, you know, close to that, 28 to 30. And Jesus looked at him, and he saw himself. Because, see, he too was a rich young ruler, although far greater wealth. And he too had many servants that would attend to his every need and his every want as he was in glory with his father. And all the angels would bow before him and constantly cry out in worship of him in that magnificent place of glory. And everything he ever wanted and ever needed, he had. And yet Jesus came to give it all away. He already made that choice that he was offering to this young man here. Here, I gave it all away. I surrendered it all. I gave up everything. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus grieved because he knew he was surrendering everything he had, his place before God, everything, and he would have absolutely nothing and for the very first time in his life, completely and utterly cut off from God the Father and the Holy Spirit alone. And it grieved him to the point of tears of blood. So he came to that place and he made that sacrifice that he was offering to this young man and he could see himself in it. Paul tells us that though Jesus was rich, For our sake, he became poor. And when you understand this, when you understand this whole scenario, understand that Jesus is the rich young ruler, it changes your whole concept of money. You think about money completely differently. You're not seeing it as your savior anymore. And so it causes you to change how you you act with money. It's no longer... uh, how much can I afford to give away? Because when you ask yourself that question, the answer is usually nothing, right? (laughs) I got nothing left. I spent it all. Now we can debate about the merits of what I spent it on later, but it's gone. Or if I do have some left over, it's really small. You know, I, I saved a little on the new TV, Here's 20 bucks. Or when you understand who Jesus is and the sacrifices that he has made and that he is the rich young ruler, then you are asking yourself a very different question. You're trying to figure out how much you can give away. Two different responses, looking at it two different ways, one following the law, one following the attitude. See, the God of the cross is a God who gave it all away. And that's the truth of the cross. 
that it's not about acquiring wealth, acquiring power, holding power. In fact, the cross always moves away from that. He says, my power, Jesus is saying this, my power is always moving away from people who love more power and more money, and my power is always moving towards people who are giving it away, as he did. These people are simply not content to make Jesus their friend, their guide, their mentor, their teacher, boss. But they're only content to make him Savior and Lord. How do you want to live? How do you want to live? The story brings us to that question. Great story. How do you want to live?